domestic terrorism will be something that is going to be a massive issue in the future. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is journalist Lori Siegel. She is a correspondent for 60 Minutes Plus, founder of Dot 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 Media, and author of the upcoming book, Special Characters, My Adventures with Text Titans and Misfits. Lori started her career at CNN, covering the dawn of the tech boom. She rose to the position of senior tech correspondent at CNN, interviewing leaders like Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg along the way. She left the network to start her own production company, Dot 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 Media, which focuses on the intersection of tech and humanity. Last year, she joined 60 Minutes Plus, the streaming iteration of the iconic news magazine show, which airs on the new streaming platform, Paramount Plus. At 60 Minutes, Lori has continued to cover tech and social media, with a particular focus on the extremist movements that develop online. I called her up this week to discuss her incredible career, interviewing tech titans like Mark Zuckerberg, and how social media-fueled conspiracies like QAnon are sweeping through the country. Lori, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited to be here. You just finished writing a book, from what I understand. What can you tell us about that? Well, I can tell you that the process of writing a book is as grueling and fascinating as they all say it is. Um, you know, I wrote I wrote this book um, during the pandemic, right? Like in the midst of like I. I God, I think it was like I opened the computer March 2020 and started with the first sentence. Um, and, you know, it, it was really kind of a look back. You know, I created our startup beat at CNN around 2009, 2010, when people weren't really paying attention to startups and uh, really, I want to say, like, rode the startup wave to the top. And a lot of the people I knew, I was interviewing the founders of Instagram and when there were like, three or four people at the company. Um, I always joke, I watch the minnows turn to sharks. Um, and, you know, I, I very much say I had a front row seat to history and I was a part of it. You've probably seen my some of my interviews interviewing tech founders during their harder moments, like Zuckerberg and Cambridge Analytica saying, you know, what went wrong? Um, and, and I think for me, writing this book was very much capturing that this last decade in history of like this wild ride of how this all happened, because in many ways, we all grew up together. Um, you know, I created our startup beat. I remember at CNN being like, God, we got to put this guy, Jack Dorsey, on camera. <laughs> I think he's going to do something. And like, and at the same time, I was, um, I was just coming up in media. You know, I didn't start out at the top at, at CNN. I started up as a news assistant, micing up guests, right? So, and be, it went on to become our senior technology correspondent because they built out a beat um, for myself when people weren't really paying attention, I think, to, to this. And so it's really the, the story, um, is all about that era and, and watching as this happened in tech and society has always been my heartbeat and my beat, you know, and it's always me sitting in front of these founders saying, have you thought about this? Because this thing's like, it's gonna go really wrong if we're not careful. Um, and, and so it really shows that. And, um, and so, you know, I can, I can say that the book is very personal. It's a memoir. Um, and it really honors, I think, what I saw behind the scenes in the most human way of what happens when we turn around the camera and talk about how human all of us are and how we got into this really complicated moment in time with tech and society. And what was it like writing a book during COVID? I should say, like, I, I always consider that 
COVID to be like an, a, a good time to write a book because you can't really do anything else. But right. you were, you know, you, you recently became a, a 60 Minutes Plus correspondent. You have right. your own production company. You host a podcast. <laughs> like, what was your writing routine like? Um, well, I almost feel like it's like a therapy thing. It's like, how how is it writing a book during COVID? Yeah. Well, um, you know, discipline, I'm, I'm as a journalist, right? I'm very good with the deadline. So as soon as I was Jealous. like, okay, I've got, I've got a deadline. I was like, all right, I've got to do this. But what was fascinating is, um, you know, we, God, like I remember, uh, cause I was living in Tribeca at the time and not, and it was basically felt empty. It was a and ghost was, town. It was a that, ghost town. And I would point, really yeah. go to a coffee shop called Laughing Man. They didn't even have like out, they didn't have outdoor seating yet. It was before the city had kind of yeah. figured it out. And I would sit on the ground, like on the cement, open up my oh, wow. laptop and I would surround myself with uh, my old, I'm uh, a bit of a hoarder. And I guess a good way when it comes to, uh, if you're going to write a memoir that I keep everything. And so I have mm-hmm. notebooks and notebooks full of writing. Um, and so I literally surrounded myself with like my notebooks from the last decade. And it's so fascinating to like, look at the things that were written in it. It's like Airbnb, like, what is this company? You know, like, <laughs> um, but, and I, I literally wrote a chapter, um, every couple of weeks. And, and it was, I did it in all my free time and I dedicated a couple of days a week to the book. Um, the book is also a part of dot, 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 the production company. So that actually made it a little bit easier to, to use all the time it's spent on it, but writing mm-hmm. a book, especially one that looks back um, at such an important time and also looks back at my time is also emotional um, and uh, nostalgic and also connecting all the dots. Right. And so, um, it was, it, I would be lying if I say it was like a great, easy experience. It was challenging in all the right ways, like any creative project. And so I'm excited for it to come out because it really gets to, you know, I get to put my, my stake in the ground and say, you know, I was here and I was a part of something really fascinating, which is this second wave of technology that completely transforms society. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I want to talk about some of your interviews with uh, these tech titans. Uh, yeah. So you've, you've interviewed everyone from you know Jack Dorsey to Tim Cook. Uh, my favorite of your interviews is with Mark Zuckerberg, which you mentioned uh-huh. uh, earlier. Um, it was for CNN. It was back in 2018 when mm-hmm. Facebook was really getting like brutally flogged for allowing misinformation to spread during the 2016 election, among a few other controversies. Uh, the interview was really outstanding. I went back and watched it uh, in preparation for this uh, conversation. And you asked a series of really, really tough questions. And I don't think a lot of people realize when they're watching Mark Zuckerberg, how powerful he is um, as the chairman of Facebook. You know, Facebook has 2.6 billion users. It's got like a market cap that's greater than the GDP of a bunch of countries. Um, What was it like interviewing someone like that with that much power? You know, it's so interesting. Um, it's when you say it like that, it's like he is the ruler of a kingdom of yes. 2.6 billion people. And like the sooner we realize that, like the sooner we can all just get there and talk about it in those in those terms, right? Mm. Um, you know, what was interesting is you walk in and I've walked into moments of chaos my whole career, right? And Facebook and Mark in particular had not done a ton of press. Um, for a very long time. He didn't have to. When you're the ruler of a kingdom of nearly <laughs> 2 billion users, I think that was at the time. Like, in, yeah. at, when I interviewed him in 2017, it was the first time he'd been on camera 
in many, many years. Wow. Um, it was his first on-camera interview. And I remember, um, you know, the, the actual interview was, uh, Facebook was changing its, um, its motto. It was changing its, which is a big deal in, um, in the kind of in the tech realm because changing your motto, it's like, you know, Google's don't be evil. If they change that, it's like changing a tattoo. And it was this idea, I think, that um, we've got to make a change. We have to do it publicly because we're beginning to get hit publicly and we've got to start putting Mark out there more. And he hasn't had to, to be out there. I think that was my first interview with him. Um, and that was all about like emphasizing community and bringing people together. It was this subtle acknowledgement that we haven't been doing our job of bringing people together. In fact, maybe we're, you know, tearing people apart to some degree. Mm. Um, and so fast forward, you know, to Cambridge Analytica, it's funny because I write about this in the book. You, when there's these moments like a, it's like, that was such a huge deal because for me, it was the moment everybody cared about technology. Like my mom cared about Cambridge Analytica <laughs> and my mom is not on Facebook. Like yeah. it was this moment where my little beat that could became so mainstream because yeah. we were all like, what is happening to yeah. our data? Like, you know, and, and it felt like we were all robbed to some degree. And then there was, well, where are, are Mark and, and Cheryl Sandberg, Mark Zuckerberg and Cheryl Sandberg, you know, where are they, where are they? And then there was a couple of days and a couple of days. And so, you know, when I actually did go in there and that, you know, I, I remember part of like the beginning of me getting that interview was I messaged Mark on Facebook. <laughs> you know, like, I, I messaged him. I was like, where do you reach out to Mark? Well, I'm going to reach out to him on Facebook. And I said, I think you have a responsibility as a leader to speak. Yeah. Uh, and then I spoke to his, his folks. And did, did he follow you? How did he like see your, oh. I imagine he gets a lot of Facebook messages. Yeah. But like we have a hundred friends in common. I've covered, I mean, this oh, is, okay, you know, you're a scrappy journalist, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. You get in there. Yeah. yeah like, and also we've, we've, um, I've been covering tech for over a decade. So I've mm. probably interviewed most of his lieutenants. Right. So sure. I knew it wouldn't deem me as random. And so when I saw he'd seen my message, I talked to this person, I interviewed him before and, you know, um, and I remember going there and of course, like there's all the drama. There was like a huge storm. We got out of the last day. <laughs> I like offered to donate my kidney to like the, you know, the uh, travel, the, the CNN's travel person in order to like have her get a, us out there. We got there and it's so funny because it was so small. Like our setup was so small when we were in mm. that room, you yeah. know, not these huge cameras. Um, and I, and I could tell to a certain degree, um, it almost felt like Mark was nervous, right? Mark Zuckerberg, mm. the leader of like 2 billion people um, to some degree, you know, was anxious, right? Yeah. Because he had managed and Facebook had managed to piss off so many people in such a yes. mainstream way. And they had not gotten in front of it. They had not had this conversation about data. Um, and, you know, I, I will say like, it was, I feel like a watershed moment for technology and society where we really began to understand that our data isn't hundred percent ours, you know? Um, and, mm -hmm. and I think um, even just interviewing him during that time. And I remember um, he extended the interview 20 minutes. Like you, you know how it works. Like you're interviewing somebody and, um, and, like your time is up and, and folks and the PR people in the background are looking yeah, at Yeah, like cut it, cut it, cut it. Yeah. Just like kind of don't make eye contact and pretend you don't see them. <laughs> like telling all my secrets. Yeah, um, well, I'm going to do that at the end of this interview, don't worry. Or, like for sure, for sure. You know, like, um, 
but he kept going and I give it to him because he, he had a lot he wanted to say. And I think yeah. like he was more as someone who's, um, you would think, uh, I, I have a, a joke that like puberty is painful, especially when you're prom king, like he, you know, it's almost as though he needed to speak. We needed yeah. to hear from him. We needed to not just hear the one, two, three sound bite. Like we needed mm. to hear more and more and more. Um, and so we were able to get through a lot and, and we ended up, um, going for a lot longer than like the 20 minutes, which I think really helped. It was the first time he said he'd be open to testifying, um, yeah. which he did now. Um, and, you know, and, and it really felt like kind of a moment in, in history. I will just never forget like how small it all felt. Like when you're yeah. walking in, I was walking into Facebook. I'd walked through Facebook for so many years. It used to feel like a college campus. Now I was on a different campus and it felt like a lot more industrial. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's such a kind of a metaphor for tech's role in our lives and how much it's become like, to a degree, the man, um, whether yeah. or not they like it, these guys aren't the scrappy startup. They're not the outsiders people. anymore. They're not the outsiders. And I've loved outsiders my whole career. Like, yeah. that's why I started covering these weirdos back in the day, you know? <laughs> so um, it was, you know, and, and they have to be able to answer these hard questions and they have to uh, be accountable for it. So um, that was a, a very, sorry, I have a dog in the background, but no that was a, a, a very long answer to say, uh, it was a fascinating day. And I think the implications were as fascinating as the interview. Now, a lot of people, especially in America after 2016, consider tech companies like Facebook and the people that run them to be evil. Um, do you think that there's anything to that? Or do you think people like Mark Zuckerberg are misunderstood? I think it's too, I think that's like way too simplistic. Simple. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, Mark, like, I, I just think it's too simple. I mean, it's like all QAnon people are horrible, horrible people, right? Yeah. And all tech people are evil and all this. It's just like, you know, our world has gotten to a point where it's so easy to just kind of like write the headlines or put this kind yeah. of stuff. Like, there's so much more nuance. Now, like, do we need to investigate a lot mm -hmm. of the things that are being done behind the scenes that we don't have any idea about, that we don't have an understanding about? Does um, you know, do our lawmakers need to have a better understanding of technology so they can regulate it better? Like, are these tech companies growing into a role that is incredibly influential, massive, and we need to understand it and hold these leaders accountable in a way? Yes, um, a thousand percent. Do I think Mark Zuckerberg's evil? Like, I don't, I don't think he's evil. I think you know? a better question is, do you think he has control over Facebook? Yes, Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone, everyone behind the scenes knows that, um, you know, Mar Mark is, you know, I think um, as a founder, he's always been a founder who's been involved in yeah. so, so many things. I mean, he's had, he has his hands everywhere. And I think he's, it's very much kind of uh, Mark's world too in there. And, and that's, I mean, but that's also many founders in tech. Truth mm. be told, you know, like if you have a very strong founder with a strong personality, like that's kind of the nature of the game in, in many ways. Now, do I think um, Facebook could have done a better job early on of, of bursting the bubble, of surrounding him with not of different types of people, especially since Facebook, if it's going to represent, um, you know, so much of the world, could we have, could we have, um, you know, done a could they have done a better job and and really bringing in more diverse people and people that challenge um and that's is when it gets really hard at companies when you have a very strong leader too but bringing people yeah. who really kind of challenge the the top and say okay we got to do it in these different ways it becomes so much of a machine i will never forget interviewing chris cox um from 
from Facebook back in the day, huge role uh, at mm. Facebook. And I remember um, it was for the 10 year anniversary. We we're walking along um, the old, it felt like an old college campus. This is when they still had the signs that by the way, have been retired. Um, that's said move fast and break things. Um, <laughs> and I remember walking uh, on the campus and I said to, to Chris, like what keeps you up at night? Um, and he said, staying scrappy. Now, anybody knows what makes a successful startup and company is like scrappiness and resilience. Now, what happens, though, is when you become this behemoth that Facebook has been, you know, being scrappy isn't part of the mix anymore. And, no, and it's hard to be scrappy that. when you have 2.6 billion users. Exactly. And then it becomes a whole new set of problems. How do you make sure to surround yourself with people who disagree in the right way? Mm. And, and I think this is what I see a lot of tech founders run into as they become their own like demigods in their own world, right? And and I think we've probably seen in tech, a lot of them flew too close to the sun, you know? Now, I want to talk about the, the other side of uh, these tech companies, which are the users. Um, you, uh, in your uh, capacity now as a correspondent for 60 Minutes Plus, um, mm -hmm. have done some fascinating segments on tech culture, but also extremism. Yeah. And one that aired earlier this month, um, I found really compelling. And I think it's because one of the craziest things I find about this wave of conspiracy that is sort of washed over a lot of America are cases where a parent of someone who is involved in, let's say, a mass shooting begins to believe that the shooting was faked. Right. Um, there was a Parkland high school shooting survivor uh, who recently said that uh, her father was convinced by QAnon that the massacre was a false flag. Yeah. And for 60 Minutes Plus, you recently interviewed an army veteran who was stationed in Fort Hood and is now in a similar position. Um, could you tell us about him? Yeah. And by the way, I've been messaging too with the, the Parkland student. It really? For like, it is just. Because she's anonymous for now, right? I don't think she's yeah, on the record. Actually, yeah. actually yeah. Um, I mean, it is horrifying and yeah. sad and. And you want to think about like, what kind of support does this person have? You know, like, um, I feel like my signal is like just full of sadness, you know? Like, oh, no. Like, you know? Signal is full of sadness. That'd be a good yeah. uh, memoir uh, yeah. title for the next one. Yeah. Well, because I also feel a lot of empathy for the people that I yeah. speak to. Um, I always look at things from all angles, right? Um, yeah, and and the, the person, and I think this is what kind of... Um, what kind of impacted me just having covered QAnon and having covered these conspiracies for all this time, I felt like the thing we're not talking about is, you know, yes, it feels like we're losing people to conspiracy theories, but the thing we're like not talking about is like people, like loved ones who feel like they're losing their family members. And, yeah. and I spoke to a, a man named Wheeler um, who, you know, was involved in the Fort Hood shooting. He was there on a day where a gunman, you know, injured all these people, killed multiple people. And when he came home, he was met with skepticism um, that had happened, you know? And, and what he had said um, was, I have PTSD, not from the army, but from my family. He said his family had fallen deeper and deeper into conspiracy theories. Um, you know, and by the way, like being the journalist, <laughs> called up his parents and had a long conversation with them as well. And I don't know how to describe all of this except for heartbreaking, yeah. you know? Um, and, and I think, you know, if there's a group online, it's called QAnon Casualties. And this is where I got the inspiration for this. Yeah. You know? 
by the way, I've just been hanging out in Reddit forums. For very, very long time. <laughs> <laughs> like, We're not writing the book. You're on the Reddit forums. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like I'm, but I'm on, um, I've been on QAnon casualties for like for six or seven months at this point. And I read these stories and it's where all these people go because they don't know where to go to talk about what they call their Q family, their loved mm. ones who have been lost to who they say have been lost to QAnon. They describe it as almost like a death. Like they can't speak to their mom or their dad anymore because they're so engulfed in these conspiracies and it's become aggressive or everyone has a different story, whether it's the Parkland survivor who, you know, their father believes that they're a crisis actor or, you know, um, we found a guy on there, his name was Dwight and like, oh my God, he deserves like a gold medal as like one of the (laughs) nicest people you can meet. But his, um, his partner, his girlfriend, you know, um, won't touch him because she believes he's been jabbed right um because he got the vaccine and yet he stays because he said well would you leave your partner if they had cancer and he's like this is what i believe it is it's it's an illness right and so just looking at all these stories if you look at QAnon casualties um god i think the number it's something like i i I don't want to i don't want to get it wrong but it was something like it went from like eighteen thousand people last year to like almost 200,000 people this year in this Reddit forum, like everyone just sharing their stories of people they've lost to QAnon. And I just remember thinking like, there is something here. Like this is like a growing group of like support. You don't want to be, you don't want to have to be a part of. Um, And so that's how this, this whole story kind of came about. Um, We'd actually hosted a conversation on it. My company, dot, dot, dot. We did, it was called QAnon therapy um, where we brought in, Jake Chansley's lawyer, the uh, Al Watkins, who's the, the QAnon shaman's lawyer. And we brought yep. in Steve Cohen, a psychologist. And we brought in someone who lost his fiance. And that was kind of the inspiration um, between QAnon casualties and these conversations. But there are these, you know, there's this whole subset of people who are losing people to QAnon and we're not yeah. talking about it enough. And, and yeah. you know, some of the folks we've spoken to, um, psychiatrists want to say this is a public health crisis, like, because this has only been amplified by social media. It's Mm. only gotten like a thousand times worse. Um, And we thought because QAnon was centered around this idea that Trump was the savior, right? So um, when when Trump was not reelected, many people thought (laughs) a lot of this would go away. Would die out, yeah. My family will come back to reality. They're going to be okay. But it's not how this works. Conspiracies evolve with the internet. Everything evolves. And so, um, you know, I think what we're facing, especially in the age of misinformation, and I don't want to get like very dark with you, but like we're going to we're going to add in like this idea of a synthetic valley and deep fakes and, you know, where where it's going to be harder and harder to know what's true and what's not. Um, And so we're just at the tip of the iceberg. So I think the larger message I really wanted people to get from this piece that we did for, for 60 plus was, you know, do we need to treat this like a public health crisis? Does there need to be education in schools about this? Like what kind of accountability should tech companies have? Um, you know, they've cracked down on some of this, but way too late. Let's yeah. be quite honest, you know, let's be honest. And so, um, you know, because there's a real human impact to this type of stuff. And that's always just been kind of where I fall. It's like human impact to technology. So for our listeners who, by the grace of God, do not know what QAnon is yet, mm-hmm. um, before we continue uh, discussing it, could you just give us a, a brief explainer of what the belief is? Yeah, um, well, it's this idea, it's kind of this belief that there's a global, I mean, there's many different beliefs that kind mm. of 
that kind of go under the umbrella of Q, but it's based on this idea that there's a global cabal of elite pedophiles that um, rule the deep state. Mm -hmm. And it sounds crazy just to say it, uh, you know, in the deep state's mainstream media, Hollywood and whatnot. Um, you know, and there are a lot of conspiracies that fall under QAnon. The election was rigged. Um, there's this idea, you know, COVID-19 has been, a, it could be, the, the latest is COVID-19 um, was a bioweapon. You know, so there's all okay. these different conspiracies that go along with QAnon. And, and what happened was there was this figure uh, named Q, who folks still don't know who it is, although a lot of people have an idea. Suspect, to yeah. Back to who it was. Um, who would post on this forum Q drops um, mm. with this idea of kind of like giving people these like kernels of, of things to kind of look at and people and these conspiracies, um, you know, and, and Q, Q, whoever Q was, stopped posting uh, back in December of last year. But yet the conspiracy has evolved and this I and I think the conspiracy will continue to evolve. Um, I will say one of my darker days after we had a, our one of our 60 minutes pieces came out looking at QAnon and really trying to understand it was I became a Q drop. <laughs> oh, no. a domestic enemy. So I will say that was not a that was not a pleasant couple days. I can't imagine uh, online. But um, but, you know, I get the sense because then you also have people who have been isolated alone in the pandemic who have been looking who are upset about the state mm -hmm. of the world understandably so who have been looking online and this this idea of do your own research does something not seem right um and you know they find these communities of people online and and it just it really just snowballs and i think that's why you've seen since 2017 and over the last years, like QAnon has snowballed in such a huge, huge way. Um, and How so, big do you think it is now at this point? I mean, I think it's hard to tell, honestly. Yeah. I, I will say, um, I think it's so much worse than, than people, mm. yeah, not to be alarmist, but you know, I think part of what I realized the first time I did a QAnon piece, um, over like a year and a half ago or something, I remember posting something from a QAnon conference and having random people, all random, like from all walks of my life, reach out and be like, my mom, my dad, my sister, they're all falling into this. A friend of mine from high school said, oh, QAnon, you know? And I just thought, wait a second, like this seems so crazy, a global cabal of elite pedophiles that are running the deep state, like, you know? And, and I realized then like, this is, much worse it's hit mainstream in such a in such a big way and so i think that's why you know i know it's not in the everyday news cycle anymore it might not be every once in a while you have the headline like someone horrifically like murdered their child because they thought they had serpent blood that's a headline recently mm -hmm. what i think we need to do a better job of is having these incremental conversations of how did we get here this is why it's not going away. How can we begin to, to tackle some of these issues? Is this a public health issue? Do we need to be having trusted voices talk about this? Like, do we need to be teaching this? What are the roles of the tech companies? Because you look at that group of QAnon casualties, it's the, sorry, for the dog. No um, you know, it's, it's really, it's such a sad, sad group that it's so um, emblematic of, I think, uh, you know, I think the, the rest of, of a growing group in, in society. And I, I don't think it's gonna get better in this age of misinformation. How do you think 
we got to this place where the predominant conspiracy theory believed by a not insignificant amount of Americans maintains that there is this this cabal of like cannibalistic pedophiles running the world. Um, it's funny, like, you know, there's one of our the, the psychiatrists that we interviewed, Zeev Cohen, he deals with people who uh, talk about conspiracies all the time, right? And he mm. said over the last years, it's gotten so much worse, like people coming in having conspiratorial thinking. And he said, you know, we all have a part of our brain that has some irrational belief about something. Okay. Like I'm not saying yeah. about what conspiracy in us, but, but social media. It's like all the men that get pulled and say they could defeat a tiger in a fight. <laughs> right. Like a, a large portion of men in the world believe that they could defeat a tiger in a fight. Like, I mean, that's like so upsetting. And like, I, <laughs> I can literally like Shanghai the whole interview and go off on that, but I'm not going to. <laughs> yeah. Keep it, keep it on topic. <laughs> I can't. Anyway, but you know, it's like, um, but with social media, it gives it this platform, right? And mm. and you, it gives it a community. And and there are these things where like, what QAnon does a good job of is like, there are little morsels of truth in all of the conspiracies and you can see what you want to see in many different places. Now you add to that times of strife, you add mm. to that what's happening in the world, fear, isolation, people losing their jobs, people having to come be, you know, stuck at home. Um, you add to that anger, a lot of the anger around this too. You add to that the rhetoric of uh, President Trump to some degree, right? And it's a perfect storm. Uh, it, it truly is. And, and then you add to it like the fact that the tech companies, and this is, I'll, I'll put on my tech hat, like didn't, didn't take control of this soon enough. You know, from the time I said across from Mark Zuckerberg, uh, in 2017, and they said, we're going to really emphasize groups. QAnon grew in so many Facebook groups and was allowed to grow. This misinformation was allowed to grow. And it wasn't until I think probably around 2019 that they, they really tried to squash this. But the damage had been done. The damage are the people that you see in that 60 Minutes piece, right? That 60 Minutes Plus piece where you see a woman who, um, God, a, a woman who, had struggled with depression and suicide. And she said her father in the past was, had saved her and now she can't speak to him. You know, the human impact mm -hmm. is a man who can't touch his, his partner because she believes that he's shedding because of the vaccine. Um, the human impact is a, a man who bravely was in the Fort Hood shooting whose parents are questioning whether or not it even ha it happened and, and questioning his story. And I think that's where you know, the heartbreak of, of kind of this, this era is so. Now, as you noted that, you know, the behavior, when you believe this sort of stuff, like believing that, you know, John Podesta and Hillary Clinton are running a, a, a sex trafficking ring out of a pizza place. Um, the behavior can get pretty extreme and a number of QAnon believers have been arrested and charged with crimes. Yeah. When you're reporting on these believers and going to, you know, a QAnon convention, have you ever faced threats or felt like you were in danger? No, honestly, I mean, they're fairly benign, despite the uh, beliefs. Chaos pretty well. Like I think there was one time where we were on like a compound with like a lot of goats and people with guns, and I was like, I'm fine, you know. Like, <laughs> I mean, truly. Like, by the way, my poor Jewish mother is like <laughs> petrified. Yeah, yeah but, but truly, like, you know, I think those are some of the more extreme cases, right? Mm. What I find, um. And what I think is really interesting are the, you know, not the the outlier extremes, but and and by the way, and this is where we have to be careful because it's there's a fine line between 
at these people who are looking at this kind of stuff and becoming angrier and angrier and angrier, yeah. which we, we will potentially see. Um, but, you know, I, I've always looked at these things. It's funny, I spent a lot of time, um, this is not the same at all, but I spent a lot of time going into hacker communities back okay. uh, at DEF CON and Black Hat when I'm covering, like I've covered tech for a long time. So um, DEF CON is like a hacker community where, um, people who kind of hack mostly for good, some in the, mid in the middle and then everyone else, maybe not sure. so good. Um, kind of hang out in Las Vegas for a week. It's a really fun week and like turn off your Wi-Fi or you'll be hacked. Yeah, um, sure, yeah. But, you know, they're very skeptical of you at first. And, and I find that if you just go in and you're just curious and you don't go in like- Confrontationally. You know, confrontationally, you're trying to prove them wrong, but just try to listen. Yeah. And I'm not saying listen to the conspiracies and try to like understand that as much as listen to like, who are these people? Why are they there? A lot of people I met were veterans. A lot of people have come back and they're angry. They're angry about, you know, the, what they don't feel like they've been given um, or what they feel like they're frustrated about, um, you know? And so I think really trying to read between the lines has always been my thing. And I think if I've always gone in unafraid to just like have a conversation with someone. I mean, I think the only time I was like, <laughs> A little alarmed was when um when I had the cue drop on <laughs> that had a, had a video of me calling me a domestic enemy. I think that was unfortunate. But as journalists, we just deflect our emotions sometimes. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah it's no big deal. Yeah, tell everyone that. Yeah, no, that totally fun. I mean, labeled an, an enemy of Q. Nazis and militia groups. So like, it's you know. Yeah, the QAnon is like slightly less terrifying. I feel like yeah. than, than yeah, yeah, neo Nazis. Yeah. Well, um, I, I have like a very high threshold for dysfunction. We can talk about that. <laughs> now, an event like January 6th, um, when pro-Trump rioters ransacked the U.S. Capitol, is a pretty direct culmination of this sort of mass, like brain yeah. smooth over. Um, you had been reporting on extremist movements long before that day. Did you see something like that coming? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like, hands down, yes. And And I think like, you know, I will never forget, we were doing this for, um, I was doing this for 60, like, I interviewed um, a group of the largest group from like the Michigan militia, um, and a group um, from the Boogaloo boys, which are very kind of anti government and whatnot. Um, I was literally sitting in as they were kind of like putting in their ammo and going to like a, a, um, a protest where it was going to be proud boys, Boogaloo boys, like, all sorts of folks and they were like trying to have like a peaceful protest and everyone was up there with like their like massive guns and everything it was it was super interesting uh and this was like i think like the week after um there was a plot to kidnap the governor of michigan sure. world. so it was, it was certainly a heightened mm. uh, a heightened time and you know i remember being out there and being with the, these folks who believed that they were protecting the country. And, and I remember saying like, raise your hand if you believe that we're on the brink of civil war and every single one of them raised their hand, said, we're already in it, you know? Yeah. And, and so I, I, it did not surprise me. I mean, it was horrific and surprising on that day, but it did not surprise me that this culminated and something that people gathered online, that they found these communities online, that this online hate and this online conspiratorial thinking turned offline. Like this is not new and will only get worse. Um, you know, I remember when I was at um, when I was at CNN. I think it was 
maybe my last year at CNN, um, I, I was thinking about uh, an interview I did with somebody who said, our world is becoming a chat room and we are becoming avatars, our own avatars. And, and I was like, oh. it's like a Black and, Mirror episode. I mean, a hundred percent, by the way, Black Mirror, <laughs> one of my favorite shows. And, I, could have, I could have guessed that. <laughs> um, I hope I haven't appeared too dark in this interview. I'll, I'll try to like pull it back for the light. And so but I remember um, there was, it was probably my last month at CNN and I, I was leaving because I wanted to create my own um, production company where we do tech and humanity pieces and we cover the nuance of these things and we dig deep on it because like they're messed up and they're interesting and they deserve mm. nuance. Um, and I remember there was a bomb at the office. Like someone had sent a bomb to the mailroom. I'm sure you remember this. It was the right? pipe bombs, right? The pipe bombs. Someone yeah, that was the office. And I, I remember all of everyone's like, you know, we're all on 58th street. Also, there's like this problem because like, I don't know, we're journalists, so we're not going to run away. Like, we're yeah, all crazy. Like reporting so, on the pipe bomb as it arrives. One of us we just like hold up our phone. Yeah. Um, you know, the police are like, go, get back. <laughs> get out. Um, but I, I just remember thinking because there was so much that led up to this point. I had had a series um, come out called Divided We Code about the red pill forms and all, all of this stuff. And, um, it, you know, and, and I remember thinking to myself as I was sitting on, I was standing on the, the uh, on it was like on 58th Street. It was on Ninth Avenue, and I was watching as the bomb that there was like a whole. I've never seen like a bomb removed from a building before. Yeah. Um, and I saw the truck come by, and I was thinking to myself because I remember I, I realized like these threats had started as tweets and been taken down. Yeah. It started as Facebook posts. And it's like, we are entering this world where like this stuff is weaponized, um, where tweets are becoming bombs, like yeah. where, you know, where this hateful rhetoric is turning into an attack on our country, like on January 6th, and people are finding communities around it. And technology has been the through line for a lot of that. And, and in many ways amplified it. You know, I think I had this moment when we were interviewing a guy, his name is Soap. Um, it's our Call of Duty character. Um, and he, uh, he was, um, a young man, really interesting guy. And he was, um, kind of, you could tell he was like beginning to lead the Boogaloo, his Boogaloo boys, um, group and Boogaloo boys is kind of an extremist group, um, very anti-government, you know, um, and have been associated with, uh, with violence. And we were there in rural Michigan and I was sitting there with him. And this was for this piece we did at 60 and, and. I was sitting there with him and he said, you know, I was so angry during the lockdown and I couldn't go to the gym anymore. And, and he seemed so young to me, you know, like, and I wasn't sitting across from someone who was scary. I was sitting across from someone who was young. Um, and he, and he said, and so I went on Facebook, right. And I'm like, literally in my head, I'm just thinking like, well, this is literally a textbook. And he's like, and I found some other people who were also like, you know, and he's like, and you know, Facebook, you click on one thing and it just shows you it. I'm like, yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> and this is why we're here. You know, so all of a sudden, he's being served up all this stuff from the Boogaloo Boys. The next thing yeah. you know, he's leading the Boogaloo Boys and he's leading this protest. Like, and you know, and and um, and you begin to really see how it happens and how people find community in a time when there's loss and a time where people don't feel like they belong and a time where people feel like things are taken from them. Um, and you know. 
And literally algorithms are programmed to give them more of what they begin to search for. And so it's, it's a problem. Um, and I think January 6th was, if that's not an indicator that, you know, that we've got to, you know, get on top of these conspiracies, um, because these conspiracies aren't just these crazy people in their mom's basement. Like, I hate to break it to you. Like, these are real, you know, these are, these are people who are capable of, uh, and who believe, I think the hardest part is they truly believe that they are doing the right thing. I mean, I'll never forget our first piece we did for 60 Minutes Plus, I interviewed the QAnon shaman, um, Jake Ansley, right? Yeah. The, um, who was the face of the, the insurrection, right? Mm -hmm. he, you remember the guy with the horns and the face yep. paint? I interviewed him from, from prison, you know, he, he was suffering the consequences of his actions and he still couldn't, you know, move past the conspiracies that put him in prison, right? That brought mm -hmm. him there that day. He still believed the election was rigged and all of these things. And I interviewed his mother and there's, this, I, I would encourage you to look at it. There's this really powerful exchange I had with his mom where, you know, we really kind of go through it. And she finally just said, um, you know, she's like, well, I don't think he did anything wrong. He went through open doors. And I'm like, did it look like they were peacefully open to the public? We have kind of this exchange. And at the end, she finally looked at me and she said, well, it was a fraud. The election was a fraud. There you go. And yeah. there's a mother who has lost her son to prison, right? Mm. Um, and she still can't fully not fully, she can't come to reality and grasp it. And, and that shows you how deep this stuff is. Um, and it shows you that we have a real problem and it's only amplified, I think, and, and simplified by the nature of the internet. So uh, yeah. overly simplified, so. Now, just uh, one more question I have. Um, there is this perception among many, I think, uh, particularly liberals of the sort of MSNBC Lincoln Project variety, that the January 6th rioters and other people that believe this stuff are a threat on par with terrorists like the ones that orchestrated 9-11. Do you think that overstates the threat of these people? Or do you think this is a really serious problem that is going to be an issue for years and years to come? Um, I think that, you know, I think that what is happening and, you know, it's, it's funny, I covered, it's not funny. I don't know why I say it's funny. Let's mm. look. Let me strike that. Turn a from. phrase. Yeah, we'll yeah. strike it from the record. It's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I covered ISIS quite a bit. And so, oh, hilarious. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Hence why, you know, yeah. I, I looked quite a bit at, at ISIS and how um, social media gathered uh, ISIS and what they did and how innovative they were with social media mm. uh, and believing in the narrative around going against the man. And like, there was almost like a punk rock aspect to it back in the day. Yeah. It was crazy. Um, that appeals to sort of alienated, lonely people. Alienated, lonely people. And then they, you add in like slick social media with it. God, I remember interviewing like a rapper that they all loved in London. Like, you wow. know, they, like a and grime like, ISIS rapper. Yeah, like totally. It was super fascinating. And, and, and they made it almost like, approachable and like you were doing something you were fighting for yeah. something yeah and i am and that was back in like 20 i want to say 2014 or something like i am seeing kernels of that and not even kernels they're, they're growing bigger right yeah. with what's happened and i think with january 6th with um whether it's boogaloo boys proud boys like you know um q um and 
and I think that's really concerning. I think it's really, really concerning. And, and I think that, um, you know, domestic terrorism will be something that is going to be a massive issue in the future, like a massive issue, because we have allowed this to go on and it's been fueled by the internet and the nature of social media. And we don't have, I think, these larger, um, a larger playbook in dealing with this. And it's oversimplified by kind of like people just saying, oh, these people are crazy, this and that. Um, and so I think it's going to become a real issue. I think these one-offs, um, and I hope I'm wrong. God, like, mm -hmm. I hope that like we could replay this in like years to come and be like, oh, see so silly. all wrong, you know, but, um, but I do think it's going to become worse and worse because I do see those patterns that I saw with like terrorists, you know, uh, across the world. So I, I, um, I, I think it's going to get worse. Um, and I think we've got to do a lot of work to try to get it to, to get better. And then also, you know, you can have Facebook crack down on this and Twitter crack down on this, but everyone can go to, you know, all these different places now, whether it's Signal or WhatsApp and, you know, kind of this encrypted world too. So um, I think we're entering a new era. And, and so there's got to be a lot done um, at, a, at a larger level to, to try to counter what's been done over the last years. Well, Lori, I could talk to you for another eight hours, but uh, I don't want to keep you. So um, thank you so much for joining the show. Yes, I really appreciate thanks it. For, thanks for having me. I hope it wasn't too depressing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we, it ebbed and flowed, but uh, we ended on a, on a slightly positive note. Um, right, so. great, cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out coverage of my conversation with Lori Siegel on Mediaite.com.